Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We're continuing our series in the book of Matthew today called The Mysteries of Compassion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, This is the Son of God. The account of Jesus walking on water. Well, you've probably heard many different and diverse applications made of that story. I mean, for one, walking on water has sometimes been made into a joke. I can walk on water, says the joker, if if I know where the stones are. I once spoke to someone from Manitoba who asked me, do you believe Jesus walked on water? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, I don't think that's that big of a deal. I do it every January in Manitoba. (laughs) Yeah, I guess he does. But what is this story all about? You know, we often make this story a matter of Peter's faith or his lack of it. I mean, is he filled with faith when he asks Jesus if he can get out of the boat, come to him? Or is he, as some say, you know, filled with bravado, a bravado he can't sustain? Is he a hero in this story or is he a failure? And then since Peter did walk on water, I mean, for a short time, maybe this is a story about whether or not we have enough faith to do amazing things. Yeah, perhaps, as some say, that's it. You see, so many different applications have been made of this story, it's hard to know what to do with it. So why does Matthew choose to tell us the story? Yeah, I know. He tells us the story because it really happened. But please also remember that Jesus did far more things than are recorded in our gospel accounts. The gospel writers selected key events. I know they're true events, but they're key events to help us understand who Jesus was. So why this account in particular? What is it that we should learn? Here's what I think. There's something in this story of Jesus walking on water that is necessary for your faith. Again, what is that? You know, some say, well, we can walk on water if we have faith. And others say, well, it's a different spiritual lesson. Don't be afraid of the waves that are there in your own life. Something like that. Well, I'm going to come to a different conclusion. I'm going to start by reading Matthew 14, 22 to 23. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Notice our text begins with the word immediately. Immediately? Immediately after what? It's immediately after feeding the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish. Please remember that Jesus had gone to this region to be alone with the disciples. He needed time to pray, but the crowds had seen him go there. They went where he was. They were sick, they were hungry, demon-possessed, they were filled with needs. Jesus was their only solace. But the disciples wanted to send them away, and Jesus had told his disciples to feed the crowd, and they said, it's impossible. And then Jesus demonstrated his power. It wasn't impossible with him. And so Matthew tells us that now after ministering to them, Jesus dismissed them, sent them home. And immediately after he sent the crowds away, he spent no time rehearsing the faith lessons that the disciples should have learned from this. I mean, he never asked them, what did you learn? Where did you fail? What changes to your faith might you now make because of what you've witnessed? In fact, Jesus didn't even invite the disciples to now join him in prayer, in which they might have thanked the Father for an amazingly successful ministry account. 
Now, John in his gospel mentions that after feeding the 5,000, the people tried to make Jesus king by force, but Matthew doesn't mention even that, as if this might have been a great moment for Jesus to explain to his disciples why he shouldn't submit to the people's request to become their king. In fact, there's no discussion at all. Matthew accurately remembers that Jesus insisted that he uses the words, he made them get into the boat. Now, uh, we know that there's going to be a storm that night and that things are going to get just a bit desperate. And because of the topography of the Sea of Galilee, sudden, very violent storms do whip up on that lake. It's often the case that those in boats would have lost their lives in that kind of a scenario. And if you allow me to take you to the end of our passage, this passage will end with the disciples telling Jesus, now they understand that he's the Son of God. Well, now. Since he's the son of God, wouldn't he know that if he puts his disciples in a boat while night is falling, that this would be the result, a considerable emergency? Yep, he would know that. And so rather than a session reflecting on what they should have learned, Jesus knew a much better way of teaching his disciples. He would let them experience desperation. Now, some of the crowd is still there and he dismisses all of them. And then at long last, he goes into the mountain by himself to do that which he had come to do. He would pray. Now, we just stop and ask, why does Jesus pray? Isn't he the son of God? Well, yeah, but he's also fully man who, as Paul teaches us in Philippians 2, he doesn't use his authority as God to his own advantage. He, in prayer, is constantly submitting himself to his father, making requests of his father. And we do have an idea of what Jesus prayed about from simply observing his other prayers. They're recorded in the Gospels. We know that once he taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, so we have to assume he was praying like that all the time. In Matthew 11, 25, well, listen to him pray. He says, At that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. See, Jesus frequently thanks God for how God has revealed himself to humble people, and he has bypassed the proud. If you read Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, we hear how he'd been praying for Peter since he knows that Satan has wanted to sift him as wheat. And in John 11, 41 to 42, we hear him praying outside the tomb of Lazarus. And he's thanking his father for hearing him when he asks for the resurrection of Lazarus. And in what has been called the high priestly prayer, It's in John 17. We hear him praying for himself, for the apostles, and for the church as a whole, that is, all of his followers. Hebrews 7, 25 says of Jesus, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is, even right now, the prayers of Jesus are still ongoing. Right now, Jesus is pleading with the Father on your behalf. What great news. And so I guess we don't have to wonder what Jesus was praying about. He's there by himself, and we have to imagine two scenes. The one is Jesus on the mountain praying earnestly and intensely and fervently for his disciples. He knows the weakness of their faith. He knows their inability to grasp the mission that is before them. He continues to pray, says Matthew, well into the night. And the other scene, it's happening at the same time, are the disciples on the lake. And they're having such a very difficult time. Imagine these two scenes happening at the same time. 
Now, let's take a look at the second scene. It's in Matthew 14, 24 to 25. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, the Jews thought of the night in terms of four watches or four different guard duties. Without electric lights, all cities would have been vulnerable to attack during the night, as well as the activities of robbers and evil men. And so the first watch, it's from six to nine, the second from nine to midnight, the third from midnight to three, and the fourth, the one that Matthew mentioned here, goes on from three to six a.m. So if you would imagine that Jesus insisted they get into the boat at evening and then a wind was whipping up, they're probably in danger for at least nine hours. They've been straining at the oar and they've made no headway. They might have been hoping by then, maybe we can hang on until it's morning light and then we'll get our bearings, maybe we'll have a chance. And all the while, Jesus is not coming to them. Instead, he is on the mountain earnestly praying for them. Well, now, what good is that? If he can rescue them, but he doesn't, and he's simply praying. Again, all of that depends on what he's praying for. You see, if he's been praying for the storm to end, for them to get quickly to the shore, well, clearly, the Father hasn't been answering that prayer. But if he's praying for their faith, for the eyes of their heart to be opened, for them to understand both who he is and why he has come and why he has chosen them, and the worldwide mission he is giving them, and how he will send them. Well, if that's what he's praying, if he's praying for that, and I'm quite sure that's exactly what he's praying for, well, I hope you can see that his coming to them on the water was after the Holy Spirit had been preparing the hearts of the disciples. Their Lord and Master knew this is exactly what they needed to build their faith. They needed to become desperate, And Jesus also knows the same thing about us. He knows that there are times when we need to be desperate as well. This alone will build our faith. This alone will help us to grow into the kind of men and women that Christ wants us to be. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. So to learn more or to register today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. If Jesus knew what his disciples needed, it's also so with us today. Our Savior knows that we need these dark nights in which the soul is in anguish and we are making very little progress. And even though we may not understand, 
And even though we may not know what we are to learn in this time, rest assured, we have a loving and strong Savior who is, right now, interceding for us. He's earnestly praying so that the outcome of our dark and stormy nights will result in the best possible outcome. It was now the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to his disciples on the sea. He's walking on the water. I'm reading verse 26. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. And we have to assume a cloudless night with the stars providing light, perhaps the moon as well. And so through the dim light, they see a man walking on the water. Our English translation says that they thought it was a ghost. And the Greek word here is the word phantasma. And that word is used in Greek literature. And it, it describes a vision in a dream, but it can also describe an apparition of a spirit. That is to say, this would be the spirit of a person who has died and who is now roaming the earth in some kind of a form. Now, just to be clear, the Bible never affirms that the spirits of the dead walk the earth. Uh, but here's where it gets strange. And do the disciples think this is the spirit of a dead person? Hard to say what they thought. But in some superstitions of that day, the spirits of the dead would come to you just before you died. Well, was this the case? Was this a sign that the dead were coming for them? Well, we're not told, but if they thought that, they're terrified. Interestingly enough, in the book of Job, chapter 20, Zophar, who's one of Job's miserable counselors, he tells Job that the wicked soon die. Even though they appear to climb the heights of heaven, he says, in their success, they're soon going to die. And then, in verse 8, Zophar says, he will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. That is, the dead are like a vision in the night, he says. It's interesting. You know, even in our day, we have stories of spirits of the dead haunting houses and graveyards or something like that. These are, of course, I was going to say this, this is utter nonsense. And furthermore, Deuteronomy 18 verse 11 forbids attempting to communicate with the dead. The idea that the dead are still alive in Sheol or in paradise, well, that's a biblical idea. But the dead can't communicate with the living. But there are times when what we experience overwhelms us, and then deep, irrational fears begin to pour out. And the disciples, now at the very edge of things, seeing a form walking on the water and not knowing it's Jesus, they're exactly in that place. Here's a question. Why did they assume the worst? I mean, couldn't they have assumed the best? I mean, why not start with the assumption, maybe God sent an angel for us, or or with the assumption that the one who just multiplied the bread and the fish, he's coming to us right now. But here in the moment of their extremities, when the worst seems to be happening, it is then that we lack faith the most, and when fear rises to its height. Let's now go to verses 27 to 28. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. See, I don't know how you feel about this unusual request from Peter. You know, it seems to some, it's rash. It's like later in Matthew 16, where Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to die, and Peter most inappropriately says, you know, that's never going to happen. I mean, what is Peter thinking? Is he thinking that he knows better than Jesus about what's going to happen? And is Peter here challenging either Jesus or a potential spirit? Prove to me you're really Jesus. I mean, perhaps that's what he's doing. But think of this same request from another perspective. 
Peter is expressing a confidence that if that's truly Jesus out there, well, then he has the power and authority over nature to allow even me to walk on water. And if that's Jesus, then he can command nature to hold me on top of the waves. No one else can do that but him. You know, seen from that perspective, this is a moment of great confidence that if it's Jesus, then only he can do those things. He can do what no one else can do, and that's faith, confidence in the unique authority of the Jesus he knows. It's inspiring. Now then, let's keep reading. Matthew 14, 29 to 30. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, this matter of Peter walking on water has long fascinated me. I have to assume that since the water was quite choppy, and how did that matter actually work out? I mean, is he walking up and down the waves? You know, kind of like walking on a very choppy waterbed? I don't think on this side of eternity, without having Peter around to ask, that we have any idea of what this experience must have felt like. But I have no doubt the sensation was altogether unique. And we also know that the wind doesn't stop blowing until Jesus gets into the boat. And so not only is Peter walking on very choppy waters, he's straining forward in a very strong wind. And, you know, from my perspective, I don't logically see how he could have kept his eyes on Jesus without a sense of both the wonder of what's happening around him and then replaced by fear at the physical reality of what he's standing in. And then he begins to sink. Had he been overconfident? But now he faces his own uncertainty and he begins to sink, says the text. Again, Matthew doesn't describe the details, but it's not as if he's suddenly up to his neck in water. No, no, he's gradually sinking. Is he up to his ankles and then his knees? Again, we're not told, but I have to believe that that experience feeds further on Peter's fears. And he's no longer the confident Peter, but he's the helpless boy in a raging sea. I think there are moments when it's easier to remember that Jesus has authority over all things than at other times. I think there are moments when we are facing very difficult situations when we forget. Again, I I don't blame Peter here. He's the most human of all responses. I mean, how do I remember my theology when I'm sinking? And when the worst of my fears are upon me, and when my struggles are overwhelming me, and when everything's not working, how do I remember the one who has authority over nature? But here again, let me come to Peter's defense. All he can now say is, Lord, save me. I can't have the faith you want me to have, but you can save me. That's what I do know. And then verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And so Jesus simply walked over to Peter and lifted him out of the water. But what he says seems so harsh, oh, you of little faith. Now, it's true that Jesus had told him to get out of the boat, and it's true that he had begun to walk on top of the water, but he had failed. Couldn't he have seen the wind and the waves and never doubted that Jesus controlled those things? Could he not have seen that these were Jesus' waves under his command? All of this came from him. Yep, Peter's faith is defective. But then again, it wasn't just him. When Jesus told his disciples to feed the crowd of 5,000, they said, it's impossible, there are too many. They hadn't said, Jesus, show us how. Rather, they said, we don't have the money, and there are too many. And from their perspective, that's the end of the problem. Send these needy people away. We have no resources for them. What little faith. 
And that's why Jesus sent them into the storm. He wanted his disciples to face the same desperation the crowd had faced on the previous day. He wanted them to know that Jesus was enough. And that's why he spent that night praying for that revelation to come through. So let's finish our passage, verses 32 to 33. And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. That's the first time in Matthew where the disciples have ever said such a thing. You're the Son of God. What do they mean? Well, I think it's very likely they thought he was God. Remember, these were men who, as children, had been taught the Scripture. And in Job 9, verse 8, it says of God, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God alone, says Job, walks on water. And that truth makes these disciples do what up till then they would have thought unthinkable. They worship him. I say it's unthinkable because as Jewish men, they would know the Ten Commandments. The first command, they are to have no other gods. The second, which is the command against making an idol, also says they must not worship any god but the one true God. Furthermore, in his temptation, when Satan came to Jesus, tempting Jesus to worship Satan, Jesus responded from Deuteronomy, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And now here is Jesus receiving worship from the bowing disciples. In the end, Matthew wants us to know that Jesus walked on the water. It tells us who he is. Jesus is God the Son come to us in human flesh. Matthew wants to say to us, therefore, like the disciples, worship him. John, I think when we look at this passage, we think, you know, Jesus is really being strategic here. And it leads me to the question, does does God design our hardships? Yes, he does. Uh, He really does. And that is part of what we learn. Um, it's important to recognize that, especially when we go through hardships, that, that, that God knows exactly what we need to grow faith, that he knows what we need to become more compassionate. I mean, I think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians in the beginning of the book where he, he talks about uh, ministering with compassion because we have received compassion. So um, I, I do think that when we come to a point of need and desperation, we begin to know what need and desperation actually feels like. Our loving Heavenly Father knows how important it is for us to come to that conclusion. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Truth in Life Today has been a wonderful journey of ministry. So many thoughtful, insightful guests shedding light on challenging topics of Christian life. While now in 2020, We look forward to continuing Truth and Life Today, but with a renewed purpose. This year, Truth and Life Today is becoming more personal, more interactive. Truth and Life Today videos, both archived and current, will be easily accessible through our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or at truthandlifetoday.com. How is it more personal, more interactive? Well, each episode will be designed around your personal Bible study or small group study with Dr. John Newfeld leading the way. And every episode will provide you with study notes available through truthandlifetoday.com. So join us as we launch a new generation of Truth and Life Today. 
For more information or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca.